From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. The people who build the brands we know and love tend to be entrepreneurs who get heralded. That's primarily who we've talked to so far on By All Means, from the founders of Caribou Coffee to Evereve and Love Your Melon. But there are other ways to be in control of your own career, to chart your own path, to answer to yourself. Consultant can be an overused term, but those who do it well are sometimes the unsung heroes of companies large and small. That brings us to today's guest, Sue Remish. If you're in the beauty industry, you've likely met her, worked with her, or read about her. If you're not, well, you might not know her name, but you've no doubt come in contact with her work. Sue has worked with Aveda, L'Oreal, Kiehl's, Frederick Fakai, Lancome, Bumble and Bumble, Conair, Graham Webb International, Kevin Murphy, and, well, you get the idea. She's known for helping brands grow and innovate and find their audience. And all the while, she's been her own boss. I'm so excited to talk beauty and travel and consulting with my friend Sue Remish. Hi, Sue. Hi, Allie. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor. You have such a cool career and you're so kind of like under the radar. You're stealth. You're in and out. I know years ago I had several friends say to me, you don't know Sue? You have to know Sue. (laughs) Everybody knows Sue. And I'm like, well, I want to know Sue. And so we went to coffee and we hit it off. Yeah, we did. And we've been chatting ever since. Yeah, that's true. I feel so lucky to know you. Thank you very much. I don't feel like I know very many people, but I tend to, then I go out in the world and I'm like, oh, hey. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. (laughs) So you, your whole career has been in the beauty industry. Yeah. Yeah. I know on your bio, you say you started behind the beauty counter, but it goes back even further than that. You were a model. Let's not be modest. Yeah, yeah, for about five minutes. (laughs) I was. Um, Tall and blonde. Really tough behind the camera, though. I, I really struggled with having my picture taken, which we just learned in your studio. I just, it, it was never going to be my path. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're, you know, six feet tall in the sixth grade, people definitely push you toward that profession. Interesting. Um, but no, my my beauty, my love of beauty actually started way before I ever started working in beauty. Um, I grew up just right down the street from where we're sitting today. And my father had a pharmacy on the corner of Randolph and Snelling called James Pharmacy. And uh, in the pharmacy, you know, it was very entrepreneurial at the time, but my mother and father ran this business and my father was a pharmacist and my mother ran the gift shop. And between the gift shop and the pharmacy, there was a cosmetics area. And and, you know, my my parents were, um, you know, as soon as we were old enough to reach the cash registers, we were working. And we're a tall family, so that was about the age <laughs> of nine. I'm sure there are child labor laws in place now that would stop that. But um, when we would go into the pharmacy, it was always my goal every day to spend time in the gift shop because then you get to cover the cosmetic area. Uh-huh. And so I grew up selling Bonnie Bell lip smackers, oh, Revlon cherries best. in the snow, fire and ice, all these iconic brands. Mm-hmm. And that is really my first, like, you know, sort of vision into what I wanted to do with my life. And I, I formed that very early. What did you love? What was it about beauty, about um, the products? You know, it really, I mean, the products are, are so much fun and the discovery and the playfulness is, is, a, is a blast. But really what I loved about it is how women felt um, when they would be purchasing these products. And later on in my career, when I worked behind the counter and when I worked for brands, and I spend a lot of time in the field talking to consumers. I have a, a big piece of my business is, is a research component. And you know, when women hug you at the end of a beauty consultation and you just met them 15 minutes ago, like it was sort of my own little way of having purpose in the world of making these women feel so terrific. And I fell in love with beauty and I fell in love with the consumer. And those are not, you know, mutually exclusive. They are very connected concepts. And, you know, if you don't love customers, you probably won't love working in the beauty industry. Sure. And and so for me, it was a really early, um, an early path that was, it was Forged, probably cemented by the time I was about 15. 
So you finish school and go to, you finish high school, yep. go to college. Yeah, I go to the University of Minnesota. And, and what did you major in? I majored in communications. Okay. And uh, it's kind of a kooky story. My first job, my first corporate job was with the Lauder Corporation. I worked for the Clinique division. And uh, I was in college at the University of Minnesota. And I was waiting tables like many college students do. And I decided, you know, I've got to start get it, forging a beauty path. But waiting tables is just, just the easiest way to pay for college because mm-hmm. I worked at Winfield Potter's and I made a ton of money on the weekends, had a drawer full of cash and, you know, paid my tuition um, through through waitressing. And I was walking through Dayton's department store, the Rosedale um, store, and I saw this woman standing behind a clinic counter that I went to high school with. And I saw her doing this makeover. And like it's it was like a thunderbolt struck me. And I said, that's what I want to do. And so I went to Dayton's HR department and I applied for a job. And I got the job working part-time behind the Clinique counter in Dayton, downtown St. Paul. And so that's where it, it kind of all began for me. And um, I was, you know, I was Did 19. you know how to do people's makeup? No, but Clinique is a really, they're really good teachers. So they, they had a very in-depth training program where they taught you about skincare. They taught you about makeup. I mean, I knew how to do my own makeup in my five mm-hmm. minutes of modeling, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, there was, you know, a lot of, of class and curriculum that they would train you and teach you. So um, I was working part-time, and my very first mentor in the beauty industry, a woman named Roxanne Olson, uh, came to my counter one day, and she said, look, if you want this, this is yours. And she said, but you got you to gotta stop screwing around. You know, and at 19 years old, you just, everything was like fun, and, you know, mm-hmm. I'd be wandering over to the other counters, you know, making friends with everybody who worked there. And she said, you know, you're selling more product as a part-timer than most of my full-timers behind the counter. So if you want to make this career, get serious about it because it's yours and and she really you know she she resonated with me and so um every time somebody would come in from Clinique to New York because they loved Dayton's Dayton's they considered them very smart merchants they were good partners you know Dayton's and Clinique and every time somebody would come in from New York Roxanne would make sure they visited my store and I would just say I want to work for you I want to do this I want I want this to be my career I want this is my brand my blood ran green you know the Mm -hmm. Clinique green and then one day the call came and there was an opening um, for a position uh, in Chicago and I went to New York I don't think I had Ever, I was thinking about this. I don't think I'd ever actually been to New York. And a woman who worked in the Oval Room, you mm-hmm. know, helped me find a suit to wear to my interview in New York, where I went and met uh, Carol Phillips, who was the woman who Estee Lauder had tapped to start Clinique. And uh, she was the most graceful. She was like Grace Kelly to me, you know, sitting in this giant New York office on Fifth Avenue. And you're like, what, 22? Oh, 20. Like 20? Yeah, just, 20. Just out yeah, of college. Yeah. Well, here's the other interesting twist. Almost out of college. Ah. So I, I got the job. And I was to relocate to Chicago, and they needed me immediately. And this was to do what? For this Clinique? was to become a regional training manager. Okay. And so you would be part of a region, or actually, I'm sorry, it was to become a staff supervisor. And uh, that position I did, that was the position I was interviewing for. That's the position that moved me to Chicago. And um, so they offered me the job, and they said, we need you immediately. Well, I had two classes to finish in college and a full paid ticket to Europe because everybody goes to Europe after college. Right. right. And I remember talking to my parents saying, what do I do? And my dad said, well, you'll get to Europe again, so don't worry about that. And little did I little know how true that was. Yeah. Yes. And um, – I left the University of Minnesota University of Minnesota with two classes to go, and I went on with my cl- uh, career with Clinique, and just as a footnote, I went back to the university 25 years later to finish my degree. You did. Yeah, I did. At, at 45 years old, I went back to night school to finish my degree because it always bugged me that I had left with two classes. I mean, who does that? Yeah. Two classes oh, to go, so you know? Yeah. yeah, but but I had been offered this job, and that was my life's dream. Like, I couldn't believe that I was, you know, I had this position with Clinique. So I moved to Chicago to become a staff supervisor, which went around the country and did events. You know, you did we did makeup events and skincare events. And then about eight months into the job, the position was eliminated. Ooh. And there was about 32 of us, and they let go 30 people. And they kept me and a woman named Jill Gill 
and we were the only two that were kept on, and we went on to become regional training managers. And so that was my my career with Clinique. I became a regional training manager. I left um, Chicago. I went to Cincinnati, and then I went to St. Louis, and I was kind of opening regional offices for them. And then an opportunity came came up to come back to Minneapolis. And what was that? In the regional manager position, okay. yeah. So they were opening an office here because offices were opened where there were clusters of retailers. And even though you were, you had this exposure, you're in the beauty world now, you wanted to come back to Minnesota. Absolutely. Why? I, I ran back to Minnesota. I love it here. Uh, you know, and I, it was, I think I love it here too because I moved away. And I, I would encourage anybody to move away for a time because you don't know what you have until you don't have it anymore, right? But um, just the, the, for me, Minnesota is just space. You know, you can live in space. You, there was just an article, I think, in Forbes where, you know, the top 10 cities closest to a 10-minute walk to a park. St. Paul was number two and Minneapolis was number three, you know, mm-hmm. and you just don't get that everywhere. And I just, you know, my family is here and um, and I just, I, 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 Minnesota's in my blood. I will, I will never leave, and I never say never, but I, my intention is to never leave again. <laughs> so that was 1985, I guess I came back to Minnesota. At a certain point, you went to work for Aveda. Yes. So this is a cookie Which is based story. here. Yeah. So I was sitting in the Minneapolis-St. Paul airport doing a clinic expense report, and a guy walks up to me and looks at my expense report and says, oh, you work for Clinique. And I was, like, you know, covering my expenses. Yeah. Like, who is this? You know, the IRS. And, and uh, he introduced himself. It was a gentleman by the name of Ron Evans, and he worked for Aveda. And he said, we're looking for somebody at Aveda. And why don't you come in and talk to us? And I'm like, you don't know who I am. You don't know what – I mean, mm-hmm. I could be somebody's, like, admin assistant doing their expense report. But uh, I was intrigued enough to, to – uh, make the call for two reasons. Um, number one, I had been with Clinique for, you know, at that point I was going into my eighth year and I was sort of stagnating in this training role. And of course, I everybody knew who Horst Ruckelbacher was. I mean, he was an iconic, um, you know, person in my business and I think to this city. And um, I just thought, I wanted a chance to to learn the professional side of the business. I was in the retail side, which is you know through department stores and and um, and apothecaries, and uh, I wanted to learn the salon side, and that was horse distribution system. So I called him up, and I went in for an interview, and I was hired as national sales manager. Did you get to meet Horst? Oh, in sure, that on that first day. And what yeah. were your impressions? You know, it, I thought he was lovely. I mean, he was, you know, Horst, um, as as serious of a of a you know reputation as he has, he was also a very playful guy, and um, he was really intrigued with my background coming from retail because he, you know, he's in the salon industry, which historically weren't real good at selling product. And so I think he saw this opportunity of marrying, you know, one of the best brands in retail with one of the best brands in professional. And he was very small at the time. When I joined Aveda, Clinique did more in one sale of their famous dramatically different moisturizing lotion in one size than Aveda had done as an entire business. Mm. And so it was a really big shift for me. Going, mm-hmm. I mean, Aveda was essentially, they weren't a startup. They had been in business for quite a while, but I think they were having a hard time gaining traction and he was looking to <clears throat> sort of expand the skills on his team. So so what was your, what were you hired to I was the do? national sales manager. Okay. And that was to me like a, a perfect fit because I had come from this training background, but I loved to sell and mm-hmm. I wanted to work in a sales capacity. So I, I started with him in 1990. And what was it like in, I feel like there is a whole network of people in this town, in the Twin Cities, who used to work Mm -hmm. for Aveda, who were around, you know, in horse heyday. What was that like? What did you learn from him? And and how important was that time for you? Yeah, I mean, it was critically important. Um, As a matter of fact, right before horse passed away, I had an opportunity to see him. And I, I said to him, the time I spent with you, you know, you paved the way for me to becoming a, a very successful sold-out consultant because of the things that I learned from you. And it was really nice to be able to tell him that. I, I really believe that you should tell your mentors what they meant to you. Um, I was able to say that to Roxanne Olson. I was able to say it to Horace Ruckelbacher. I have one more, and I can't find her right now, but I will. <laughs> Iris Modell, if you're listening, thank you. 
<laughs> I think she's somewhere in Montana. But, but what, what um, is the big? If you if it's possible to encapsulate it, what was the biggest takeaway? Yeah, from I, I'll tell you a story that really um, is the biggest takeaway. Is we were we in the beauty industry? We used to do these these shows, and they were big shows in Chicago, New York, Long Beach. That all of the brands would go and it was basically a trade show and salons would come in and they would shop your booth and they would you know we'd do incredible salon pricing so people could try things and it was a way to pick up distribution and we were in the Chicago show um, one day and we had set up the booth and we were all standing there ready to go ready for those doors to swing open and be flooded with hairdressers and somebody comes running up to our booth who works for Aveda and they said, horse just walked in the door. And I looked around and everybody behind our booth started scurrying, you know, straighten things mm-hmm. up and changing the displays and, you know, dusting. And I thought to myself, why are we doing that only because we know he's in the building? Like, why aren't we doing that all the time? Because Horst was a, a, a real perfectionist, and his vision was so crystal clear. And, you know, he I, I like to say, you know, if he couldn't get in the front door, he'd go in the back door. If the back door was locked, he'd go in the side door. He'd come up through the basement. Like, he just never took no for an answer. And, you know, that's one thing. And then the second thing is Horst taught you to see things that you didn't normally see. But we saw him when we knew he was coming. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's what what I took away from that is. And as a consultant, you know, people are hiring you to see the things that they don't see. And those that was his genius. I mean, he was a genius in product development and, and way before his time. I mean. The conversation around green and sustainability and eco, I mean, that was on his lips at the time, but nobody else was really paying attention. Now everybody's paying attention, you know. So he was so ahead of his time. But I think just that seeing things that other people aren't seeing and then just driving towards that vision. I've never seen drive like that. And and I can't – I've seen it. Again, but never to that level. Hmm. So he taught me a lot. So at a certain point, like 1993, Mm -hmm. you decide to set out on your own. Yeah. And again, not like a real clear decision. Like, I'm going to go be a consultant. Um, I loved working at Aveda. I I did. It was a really creative place. And we were growing this brand. And we were expanding all over the world. And it was amazing. But, you know, of course, it came with a ton of air miles. I mean, it was away a lot. And um, in 92, I guess it was, my father had a really unfortunate um, turn of health events. He got diagnosed with a brain tumor. And it was it was benign. But during surgery, he had this massive stroke. And he didn't, he, he became incapacitated. And, you know, he was, you know, he couldn't move and he couldn't talk and he couldn't eat. And, and so I was like playing this dual role of caregiver while I was working on at Aveda and I was on the road. And I just, I was cracking up. It just got to be too much. And so I left Aveda to be more available to my father. And, um, you know, the doctor said, oh, he'll live two years. And I thought, well, I can cobble together a consulting career for two years. I mean, that, you know, I'll just, I'll just make some money and while I'm going and while I'm caring for him, and then I'll go back with a company. Well, he lived nine years. Wow. And so by the time he passed away, I was deep into consulting. Uh-huh. And, you know, I had I had built sort of this this company, Sue Remish Resources, and I had all of these vendors I was working with. And, but and the so irony is you did it to give yourself more flexibility and be home yeah. and you could travel <laughs> the know, world I constantly. I know. I know. It, it didn't really work out that way that I was home more. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you're going to be in beauty, um, we have to be globalists in beauty because trends happen everywhere. I mean, you go to a place like China and China is changing so rapidly so often and Korea and Japan and like trends come from everywhere, right? So you have to be a globalist and you have to be in the world if you're going to bring any innovative idea to a beauty company because we don't just sell to North America. We don't just sell to Canada. We sell everywhere or the brands I work with sell everywhere. So it's really, really important. And, you know, there, I, I, I guess I've just been traveling my whole career and there aren't that many consultants actually who have real deep experience in the overseas markets. Those are usually corporate people. Um, because I don't know really why that is. I think people don't really normally send the consultants overseas, but because I've sort of done it my whole career, Mm -hmm. 
I'm overseas a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so. so back up for a second. When you first kind of hung out the shingle and said, okay, yeah. I'm Sue Remish. Yeah. I'm open for consulting. Did the business find you? Um, was it hard yeah. to <laughs> establish yourself? I don't yourself? actually think it took any of those steps. But what <laughs> happened was when I left Aveda, um, there were two projects that came to me almost immediately. One was Regis Corporation, and a guy named Bill Halfaker, who since passed away, was sort of running um, this division of Regis called Trade Secret. And this was a another a, company based here. This was yes, and so they're In right Minnesota. over. Yeah, they're right over off of a hundred. And he needed some help because they had bought this salon group called Trade Secret, and he needed some help with some programming. And we had done a little bit of work with him when we were at Aveda. We were going to do a collaboration. It actually never worked out. Out, but that's how I met Bill. So when he heard I left, he called me up and he said, I need some help. And that actually turned into a five-year consulting project, which was, I thought I was going to go in and out, you know, what, two years was my plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second thing that happened immediately was an old colleague of mine uh, who worked at Aveda, a woman named Melissa Shaben, had gone to work for Anita Roddick at the body shop. Mm. And their um, their their U.S. Um, headquarters was in North Carolina, and Melissa called and said, "Listen, we want to convert a semi into a mobile store." And I said, "Why <laughs> <laughs> do you want to do that?" Yeah. And, but uh, Anita Roddick had had been writing books, and she was out speaking, and you know she not unlike Horst, was a real early warrior in not only, you know, sustainability and green, but also in these micro-loans for women. And she had been setting up these micro-loan and and op- on entrepreneurial operations all over Africa and Ethiopia and various countries of Africa, and she was out speaking. And so they wanted this truck to sort of follow her around on this speaking tour to uh, examine secondary and tertiary store locations. Hmm. So I said to Melissa, absolutely not. I don't know how to build out a truck. (laughs) And she said, well, you know how to build out stores. It's the same thing. It just has wheels. In my naivete, I said, okay. Uh, So went down to Louisville, Kentucky and got a 46-foot air ride semi and brought it up to Minnesota and used an architecture firm here in St. Paul. And we built out this truck and it was a full store, which... It could have been the end of me. I mean, imagine, you know, when semis move down the highway at, you know, 55 miles an hour, they don't go front to back. They sway side to side. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to figure out how to keep one-ounce jars of eye cream from flying (laughs) off the shelves. And when we got this designed out and we loaded the shelves, the architect and I would actually go into the truck and, like, hit it to the driver, and off we would go. And we were just being pelted with product, you know. I mean, basically, I didn't get a concussion. Yeah. But we figured it out, and um, then we hired a team, and we launched it down in Phoenix, Arizona, and that truck was on the road for a year. Now, this was way before the Internet mm-hmm. and way before social media. So, like, getting into ad age was, like, the big coup, right? Mm. And ad age ran a story about the truck and I became this woman who could pull rabbits out of hats. <laughs> and so that's how I sort of launched was this truck gave me a lot of press and and it was a really and and I had been you know, I had a good pedigree between Clinique and Aveda. Those were two of the best companies you could have ever worked for sure. in, in those days because they were both the hot brands. Um, and so then, I don't, you know, the consulting just started rolling from there. And I'm not going to say it's always been, you know, fabulous. I mean, there have certainly been downtimes, mm-hmm. but um, it's been pretty fabulous over the last 15, 20 years. I feel so. like um, being a consultant is something that a lot of people want. They, they yep. think it's going to give them the flexibility they crave and they can yep. be where they want, when they want. Is it true? Is being a consultant, is that you the know, dream job? I get asked that question probably more than any question I get asked. People mm-hmm. call me and go, can I pick your brain? I want to go into mm. consulting. Love that picking of yeah, the brain. picking right? of the brain. It's, it's pretty, <laughs> my brain is like a, a raisin now. It's been mixed so dry. But um, I, I tell people a couple of, of things going in. I say, number one, if you're not in for the long haul, don't do it because it's a long haul. Um, and... Number two, and just equally as important, is if you don't have stomach for the downtimes, don't do it. Because there are downtimes, and there will always be downtimes. And if you, and the stomach means, like, if you are going from job to job to job and consulting, it can get really hairy when the work gets slow. Um, do you have downtime? Do you have flexibility? 
yes, but then you're also always thinking about, all right, this job is going to end here and what am I going to do next? And the timing of, you know, I, I happen to be a consultant that gets in very deep with companies. I mean, my my average time span with a company a company is around five to seven years. That's so long. It is long, and I that that is. I'm not really sure why that has happened. But when I look at my consulting history, initially it was a lot of one-offs. You know, I would go in, I would do a program, I would launch a product. But you know, the last you know 15, 20 years have been really long, robust contracts. And as one, how, how often do you get asked to just go on staff when you're with a company for five to seven years? Obviously, they <laughs> like lot, you a lot, a lot, a lot. But and you've never wanted to. No. And um, for me, I'm a really like I'm a claustrophobic person, and that's in my brain and in my body. And for me, being on staff, I'm not a good employee, and I know this. I was good at Clinique, and I was good at Aveda because I loved those brands, and I was really, really young. But I am I have no interest in being on staff. I, I think that my I I think I serve my clients better not being on staff because I'm always thinking about them because that's what consultants do, right? And I'm always trying to bring them innovation. I'm always going out outside of of my scope to bring them new ideas and that's probably why my my you know jobs keep rolling is I'll be hired for one thing and I'll be like well did you ever think about this because I was just over in Beijing and they're doing this and China's on the move and they're like can you do that you know so I think people don't somebody once described it me to me <laughs> as they said you're like a pharmacist which is really interesting because my father was a pharmacist and desperately wanted me to be one, which I chose not to. And he said, you know, we know something hurts and you slip us a pill and we're not sure what we swallowed. We just know we feel better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, that's what I'm, I'm always trying to slip the right pill. And um, but being on staff, you know, and I, I have had a lot of pressure over the years and it angers clients when they're like, well, what, what, what should be on staff? You obviously love us. You've been here seven years. But I just know that I serve my clients better being independent because it keeps me looking to be fresh and relevant and innovative. And I just don't know that I would do that on staff. You're so. able to keep that outside perspective, even when you've yeah. been working with a client for a long time. And do you still feel like you view them differently than you would if you were part of their team permanently? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I always try to keep an outside perspective because I think that's my job. You know, I think it's my job to always be thinking or looking at what they're not thinking or looking at. I mean, that's what I learned from Horst, right, is mm -hmm. what's what's the thing right in front of you that nobody's seeing? And so, I mean, obviously, when you get in deep with companies, you see all the warts, you see all the cuts and all the bruises. But I, I just feel like it's my job to try to heal those. And I think I'm a good community builder inside of organizations. I think I, I'm a a real, I think I build good teams, and and I studied organizational development post college for many many years, and I have a lot of levers that I can pull when I see team dysfunction, and I do it mostly at the leadership level because it has to start there and hopefully trickle down. So, I have to think that when you come in and everybody turns and they're like, "Wow, who is this?" and you are a confident, strong person, there's got to be some people who work at the organization that are like, who does she think she is? Yeah, sure. We know how to do this. Yeah. How do you deal with that? Uh, really directly, you know, and I, I you know, those those people are always in an organization, and I, I sit with them, and I said, look, I'm I'm only here to do what's right for the business, and I'm not going to come on staff, and I'm not going to take your job, and if you use me in the right way, you will look better. Hmm. I will make you look better. And, you know, I had a, a conversation with a client recently where I had come into a conversation and probably came in a little hot, but I, I saw something that I felt was really a misstep. And so I was, you know, quite aggressive about my opinion about it. And it came back to me that the whole team was really wounded by this. And, you know, I flew out to their office and I sat with the team and I said, don't put your heartbeats into this. You know, I'm only trying to do what's right for the business and don't feel bad. If I'm, if I'm being too aggressive in my opinion, just say, you know what, Sue, let's take this offline and you and I will have another conversation, but don't do it to yourself because it's not about you. It's only about what's doing right for the business. Mm -hmm. And they were all nodding at the end of it and saying, well, you did kind of light a fire under us. And mm -hmm. I said, then that's good. Then everybody wins. You so know? give us an example or two, um, some successes beyond the, the body shop, things that you're really proud of. I know Kiehl's, you had big wins yeah. there. Obviously, Kevin Murphy. What what's, <clears throat> what's a success story? It's something where you went in, saw an opportunity, and really capitalized on um, it. 
There, there have been a couple. I mean, I'm working right now with Kevin Murphy and with their team on converting 100% of their package to ocean waste plastic. You know, plastic in the ocean is a big, big issue for consumers, and it's top on consumers' minds. And Kevin um, made a decision that he didn't want to be part of that problem anymore, and this is a, a, a move that's costing him five times the expense in his packaging, and he took it to his board and took it to his officers, and they said, like, in a nanosecond, yes, we have to do this. And I think that's going to be a huge win for Kevin, and I think it's going to be a huge win for the planet. So I'm really, really proud to be a part of that. And obviously, he has a whole marketing team that's really driving that. Um, I'm, What's your role? I'm helping with the communication strategy. I'm helping, you know, get the, getting... In, in professional beauty, it's a long way to the front door, right? You go from the manufacturer, and if you work with distributors, it's distributors, and then salespeople and then salon owners and then stylists. And by the time the message gets to you, you may be getting, you know, just a tenth of it. So I'm, I'm trying to help them with how do we tell this story? Because it's really an important story to tell. Um, it's really important that consumers understand the commitment that Kevin is making to this process. And so you know, I'm, I'm doing lots of, of different communications tools with Kevin to get this in the market. And it will be in the market this August that we're going to start with the first bottle. So it's been that's been a huge source of pride to be involved in that project. Um, I feel like the first time I became aware of Kevin <clears throat> Murphy before you went to work with them, I had read some something about their maybe their dry shampoo mm -hmm. would that have been it and I saw could, and I sought it out. It was yeah. either that or yeah. a straightening. You know, yeah. I have a lot of hair needs, yeah. so yeah. I sought out that product. I think I had to order it. It wasn't available, yeah. and then I find out, you know, a year later, you're yeah. going to go work for them, and I and you're like, I'm going to. This brand is going to be a household name, yeah. and and now everywhere I turn, there's yeah. Kevin Murphy. Every yeah. salon I walk into, you did that. Well, <laughs> the team and I did it, but I spent a lot of uh, time on the road building that brand for sure. And I, when I met Kevin, I met him. Um, um, I guess it, about eight years ago, we was at Cosmoprof in Las Vegas, and I said, look, I'm going to make you the next iconic brand, so get ready. And he just looked at me with these wide eyes. He was $18 was that, million in was sales Was that before that he had hired you that you oh, said yeah. you were going to do that? Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I had gone to speak <laughs> a at a meeting. You know, I, yeah. I do a lot of keynote speaking, and I, and I said it to him in the audience. of Everybody was sitting there. I looked at him sitting in the back, and I said, I'm going to make you the next iconic brand. And you know, he said to me a, a couple years later, like, I still remember the chills I got when you said that. So he He's, That's amazing. Yeah, and he's on the hill now, which is great. Why? What? Why? Why did you see opportunity um, there? What was it? It was a lot of things. Um, first of all, he is a lovely human being, and I like working with lovely people. Where, <laughs> so, where is Kevin Murphy based? He's in Melbourne. Okay, he's in Melbourne. So the there's an office in Melbourne. There's also an office in Irvine, California, and an office in Copenhagen, and one in Singapore. So we have offices all over the world. Very convenient to Minnesota. Yeah, I, exactly. <laughs> That's why I'm a Diamond Delta member, <laughs> a million miles. Um, so he, first of all, that was, first and foremost, I just like him so much. And so that's a really important, if I'm going to invest my life in somebody, I got to like the people behind the brand. That's why I spent so many years with Kiehl's. I love those people too. But um, the other thing was Kevin was uh, such a visionary. Like he saw trends and he saw things way before the rest of the marketplace. And then I honestly think it's the best hair care product going. Like, I think that that product, like, changes the structural dynamic of your hair in a really positive way. I've never been as happy with my hair as since I've been, you know, since I've been using Kevin's products. And so, you know, those are really easy. Those are those are foundational building blocks that not everybody has. And I think he had a really interesting story. I mean, he is an environmentalist. He is a hairstylist. You know, he's, a, he's you know, he created, he he was essentially the creator of the beach hair look. He created that Heidi Klum, I think it was, on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And, you know, he's got this this wonderful, deep, rich history about his career. And I like people who got their hands in the mud. Like, I, that's, that's what I do. I'm not this consultant that, like, develops things and they sit on a shelf. If I develop something, we're going to execute on it or I won't do it. Because that's a waste of your money and a waste of my time. And of all the people who work at Kevin Murphy, everybody works really, really, really hard. Nobody works as hard as Kevin. Hmm. Like he's the hardest worker on the team. And so and I just and he's incredibly funny and incredibly warm. And but, you know, we were in Dubai together like months ago, like at the early part of the year. And, and he said, will you come to lunch with me? I want you to help me cast some models. And I'm, I never get asked to cast models. That's not my jam. Right. Yeah. And so we sit to lunch and he's showing me all these models. And I'm like, 
well, hang on. These are all like over 50 models. Like these women are middle-aged. And he's mm-hmm. like, yeah, this is the way it's going. And then like two months later, every campaign I see are middle-aged models. Like mm-hmm. that's Kevin, you know, and I want to be around that kind of thinking because his innovation and his creativity get me thinking broader and wider. And, you know, as a consultant, you know, this is the other thing I would tell people is it's a very lonely existence. You know, you're alone all the time, unless you're at a meeting or with a team. I mean, you're traveling alone and you're thinking up things alone. And so you have to figure out all these different ways to create these these energy fields around yourself to stay relevant and to stay on top of things because it's really easy to go down a rabbit hole. Like, I'm not any good and nobody's hiring me. And, you know, and that, of course, brings no work. So there's a lot of things to consider when becoming a consultant. Um, It was certainly the correct choice for me. I won't tell you that when I was 20 years old, I was growing up to say, I'm going to be a consultant. I mean, that sort of just happened through mm-hmm. my family circumstances. But I, looking back, I wouldn't have changed a thing, even the painful times. <laughs> How many countries have you visited? Do you know? Oh, man. Um, I, I will tell you region. I'll tell you the countries I haven't visited. That would be a little <laughs> that easier. That would be shorter? Well, yeah. How many days of the year are you on the road? Well, I'm out I'm out on average two weeks a month, and sometimes I'm out more than that. I mean, I have two passports, you know, and I get the thick ones that have been filled over the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've had to order passports before they expire for sure. Yeah. So I've never been to Russia. I've never been to India. I've never worked in South America. Hmm. So and that prime you know that's that's because the companies that I work with you know, either can't find distribution or the, you know, I work with a lot of environmentally conscientious companies and there's there's some real sustainability issues. You know, we can't sell products into China because China does animal testing. And, you know, so there's, but I have been in China. I used to, I did quite a bit of work in South Korea. And so I was over in China just because you got to go see China. Mm-hmm. It's just where it's all happening, you know. It sounds super glamorous, yeah. but the realities of you are married. Yes. You have a life. Yes. You have a dog. You have a yeah. family yeah, yeah. Um, here in Minnesota. You yeah. also have a, a cabin yeah. that is not just up north, but literally like off the grid. Yeah, yeah, way in off Ely. the grid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of the opposite ends of the spectrum from yeah. Dubai and yeah. Singapore. Yeah. So, how do you how do you manage that? How do you yeah. how do you balance all the the travel yeah. and stay sane and stay married? And you know, it's interesting. I, I was talking to a friend the other night who um, had just had a baby, and she was kind of, you know, complaining about her husband, that he doesn't help as much. And she's like, you know, you're so lucky. You travel everywhere. You don't have kids. And I said, look, everybody has their cross to bear. And my husband travels like I do. You know, he's a geotechnical engineer. He just got back from three weeks in Indonesia. And on the night he got home, told me that after this week, he's got another 10-day trip. And that's our cross to bear. Mm-hmm. That, didn't, that, that wasn't like, oh, yay, honey. That was like, really? Right. <laughs> so, like, I'm here yeah, now. Like, I'm here. And, and when he got home, I was away. So, you know, I think that um, how do you manage? How does how do you manage, Ali? You have two kids. You have, you know, editor in chief. You oh, do podcasts. I mean, it's yeah. like how do any of us manage? You know, we we are um, obsessed with living off the grid in Ely, um, and we, my husband and I, at the beginning of the year pull out our calendars and we plot weeks that we consider immovable unless like you know somebody's factory is burning down but we really try to protect that time because we can now we we have an off the grid cabin we just recently built a, a very small home so that we could work there so if we have a week that we're both in town that we don't have meetings and we can go work out of Ely that's what we do um, I think that's going to be more of a sort of retirement situation than anything else but we can fly out of Hibbing and Hibbing always connects to Minneapolis and he's actually going uh, we're going to go up and uh, over the weekend and he's got to fly out. So he'll fly out of Hibbing through Minneapolis and I'll stay. And so it just, you work it out, but it's, it's a lot. And well, what do you like about being off the grid? Why do you want to be off the grid? I don't know anyone who likes winter and cold and suffering more than you and your husband. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Winter is our favorite season, which is why we stay in Minnesota. My husband's Canadian, so he's no stranger to winter. Um, you know, being off the grid and living in a situation where you don't have electricity and you don't have running water, it just, for me, kind of pushed everything I thought 
to be true about myself. You know, I thought, oh, this has to be washed every day and this has to be blow. And I'd still do miss my blow dryer enormously. All my friends <laughs> laugh. We just put solar into our house and we met with the amazing Will Steger and he was telling us what kind of power we would need. And, and my husband was saying, well, actually, we need this power. And Will was like, and why? And she's like, well... Lady likes to blow dry her hair, so, so our system <laughs> Even is built off, Ely, of, off a blow dryer. Right. Yeah, so, um, but it's just, it's such a complete, I mean, I live in this this incredibly weird life where I'm on the road all the time and I'm meeting people and I'm doing keynote speaking and I'm talking to audiences. And so going to Ely just takes it all down a notch for me so that I can go back out there into the world. Mm. And that's, I think, really what it is, like the peacefulness of being in that community. And I have wonderful friends in Ely and I have, you know, wonderful things I love to do up there. I love winter. I love cross-country skiing. I love getting out in the snow. And it's just, uh, yeah. It's, and, and, you know, I was the girl who used to say in college to my girlfriends, if a guy asks you to go on a date and he asks if you have like a rain jacket, you should feign illness. Like <laughs> I was that woman, you know, I was like, no, 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 we don't spend time outside, you know. Right. And then when I met my husband, you know, the great hunter-gatherer from Toronto, he just really showed me this this life of of nature and he's a really keen bird watcher and he's really you know he's a na- he's a naturalist and we'd be walking along and he would hear these birds and he put binoculars up to my eye and say look up and I couldn't believe like I, I couldn't believe what I was looking at and that I had been roaming the world all this time without ever looking up hmm. and so that that was just a real transformation for me and you know, once he, it was my husband's idea to build this cabin. And then I was just like, well, we got to build something else. We got to, we have to be able to be up here as, as long as we want. And, you know, so it's, it's been a real shift, but it's been a really, really positive thing in my life. It's such an interesting contrast to the work you do, but yeah. it really kind of makes sense yeah. when yeah. you, when you explain it like that. So on the flip side, in, in the beauty part of your life, um, how do you stay up on the trends and what is, uh, what is happening right now that gets you excited or concerned or, yeah. or, you know. That's a great question. Um, I I do an incredible amount of, of research. I, there's not a day that goes by that I'm not reading some report or attending a webinar. I'm a member of all, you know, the, the organizations that publish research reports. Um, so I'm constantly, you know, learning about what's going on. Do you try a lot of products too? Yeah, of course, because I get sent a lot of products, right? Like I just got a, a giant box of products. I said, I don't even know how I'm going to get through this. And oh, I have to. Poor thing. Yeah, I actually forgot. I was going to bring you someone. I forgot. So I'll have to get that to you. But um, yeah, so I do try a lot of products, and I, I think the biggest sort of shifts in beauty for for a long, long time since the beginning of my career in beauty, it has always been, you know, manufacturers make things and they load up the retailers and they tell them how to sell it, and then they tell them when they're going to come back and give them some more, and it was very much the control lied with the manufacturer. That has been the biggest shift, bar none. I mean, the customer is always right, has never been more true. And this has been, you know, this this consumer owning the narrative has been because of a lot of different things that happen. You know, we look at market trends, we look at consumer trends, and then we look at consumer insights, which we're now calling human insights. So, for example, um, un- ungendered beauty is a great idea, mm. uh, a great example of sort of this consumer insight where we used to sell to women, we used to sell to men, and we can't do that anymore. I mean, I think Facebook, I saw, has like 73 different genders on their site. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, genders you've never even heard of. So if you're if if you're marketing to just men or women, you're missing a whole segment of the population. Um, another huge consumer trend is women over 50. They're 30% of the beauty marketplace and they don't feel seen. Mm-hmm. And so that's obviously a big, big, you know, miss if you are not speaking to those women because, you know, the the iconic Cindy Crawford, you know, made a statement years ago. She goes, yeah, I wish I looked like Cindy Crawford, right? And and she just spoke at a conference that I attended. And she goes, I'm not interested in changing the way I look. I'm interested in preserving how I look. Hmm. And I thought that was a really great, you know, she's 50, 51, whatever. She and hasn't had any work done? 
I don't know. She's spectacular. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if she's she Cindy has Crawford. or hasn't. She's yeah. Cindy Crawford, mm-hmm. you know, and she was, I was in the back of the room and she was in the front of the room, but she's amazing. And um, I think that, that these are sort of the, the trends, you know, CVS just did a really interesting thing. Um, they, they were a, a, you know, pharmacy in a sea of pharmacies, you know, competing with Walgreens and Dwayne Reed and, you know, everybody, every corner pharmacy. And they just did a whole campaign where they do not retouch any images they use in their beauty department that they shoot. And they asked all of their vendors to support them in this because they, they, they really want to represent beauty as it is. And if a vendor chooses to touch up their beauty photos, they have to put touched, that it's been retouched on the photo. You know, that's putting your stake in the ground and like wrapping everything you have around it. And they're responding to the marketplace. So I think the, the biggest shift is in the consumer really driving this. And, you know, we we have a real crisis of trust in the world right now, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that I think it's like 56 percent of consumers don't they, they expect that CEOs are going to take responsibility before government and they trust brands more than they do their own government. And so that's that's something we're paying a lot of attention to. So it used to be that products just had to be efficacious and you had to tell that ingredient story. Now products have to be purposeful and you have to be transparent and you have to be sustainable and you have to be purposeful. And that's something going back to, you know, why I got involved with Kevin is he was so purposeful. And I think that there's the consumers driving all of this for the first time that I I've ever seen. And um, Euromonitor, I think it was Euromonitor, I could be misquoting this, but one of the research groups did this study where they asked consumers about their life and, and their their happiness level. And, and they said that um, like 57% of consumers said that their life used to be better. And when they said, what is better? They said simpler. Hmm. Life used to be simpler and life was better when it was simpler. So that, that I perked up when I heard that. Like I really perked up and I said, all right, if that's the case, then we can't be so complicated in our messaging around skincare, hair care. I don't do a lot of work in color cosmetics. I'm mainly skin and hair. But those are the, those are the, the technical heavyweights, right? And those are the ingredient loads that are so heavy. So... The consumer is absolutely driving that narrative, and that's been the biggest shift for me, mm-hmm. uh, being in the industry 35 years. Are there ingredients that you would never use, put on your own skin or hair? Um, I don't think—I mean, the, the products I use are pretty clean. Um, I, I hesitate to call out I would never use this or I would never use that because, you know, we got into this big war about parabens years ago and parabens were cancer causing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's no actual medical study on that. What had happened was there was a study in in Great Britain um, on women who had had breast cancer. And what they published in this study is they found parabens in the tissue. But that doesn't mean that the parabens caused cancer. So I get really nervous about saying to anybody publicly, like, don't ever use this ingredient because I think if you're, you know, and I work in luxury beauty and and the price points, I think there's an expectation that there's going to be some testing around that, you Mm -hmm. know. I think, uh, you know, I just was reading about Drunk Elephant. You know, they just came, they're looking at a billion-dollar valuation. This is a woman who started this in Houston, and, you know, she's like, yeah, no no more um, uh, essential oils. She thinks essential oils are just you know, too volatile on the Jeez. skin. And she's like... And essential and, oils were like all the rage. Yeah, and just she put recently. on her package, formulated without essential oils. And so I, I think that that gets into a dangerous communication when, because again, you're dictating to, to women what they should and shouldn't use. You know, I think that, you know, sulfates on hair are terrible if you color your hair. I'll go on record saying that because they strip hair color. Beyond that, you know, if you're concerned about an ingredient, I say do your homework. Hmm. And, and but it, th- do, it does seem to change so much. And there's, you know, there's this ingredient is hot and then this yeah. one is no good. And then, you know, and the messaging, it seems to change every six months. It moves faster and yeah. faster. How do you reconcile all of that as a consumer? Yeah, it's it's really hard. It's hard to navigate. And so there are, there are two ways you can do it. Either you can 
you know, everybody now that's telling a story is telling their story, and they are telling their ingredient story, and they're telling not only why they don't use things, but why they do use things. So if, if you know, you if a company has an ingredient that they consider a hero ingredient, they'll very much articulate to you why they think it's a hero ingredient and why you should use it. Um, I always recommend, I mean, ingredients, you know, there's, again, there's no medical studies that, you know, there's an ingredient that's going to make you sick. I always say to people, patch test everything, you know, patch test it for 24 hours. And if your skin seems to react okay, you're probably okay to put it on your face. You know, I was just testing a product for for some friends of mine who um, are trying to start a skincare line. And I'm a robust tester and I have pretty hardy skin. And, you know, I used their formula and I said, well, my eyes couldn't open for two days. Oops. I mean, yeah, so <laughs> you got a problem here. And they went back to the drawing board and realized that one of their ingredients that they were buying from a supplier was rancid. And wow. so, you know, it's making products is, is really, it's a lot of heavy lifting. Like you really have to go through a lot of rigor mm-hmm. to get your products to a place where you can actually put them in the marketplace. And, you know, because everybody fears, you know, somebody getting sued. Yeah. And consumers are litigious when it comes to, you know, you messing up their hair or skin. After all these years and with everything you know, have you ever thought about starting your own line? Oh, it's funny. I get asked that question all the time. And, and the, the short, quick answer is no. <laughs> because um, you know so much? Yeah, well, it's just, it's, uh, I like helping people build their brands. Um, I like helping people, I like to get into the DNA of a brand, and I like helping people discover maybe what they don't know or what they're not looking at. Um, You know, I think at this point in my career, starting a a brand, I I don't know that I have the energy to do that. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, I mean, I have a very good friend who just started, just started a brand. It took her seven years to get her product to the market hmm. and you know anymore with with being able to tell a story that is unique and that is different and has a really impressive ingredient list um, it takes a lot of patience because you might have an ingredient in her particular case she had a great technology but she couldn't figure out a vehicle that the technology could could live in and and, and you know that's and it held her up for years and that mm. costs money and you're maxing out credit cards and you know I I I've been asked to start a brand. Um, I, I don't know that I will see that in my in my career. So, I don't know so that I would So best do it. advice for others, because I know you get asked all the time yeah. by people who do want to start their own thing in, in beauty. What's Be in your- for the long haul. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you can't. It's starting a beauty brand isn't just about an idea. I mean, that's certainly the seed and that's that's the, you know, what you germinate around. But there's, you know, depending on what you're going to start, whether it's going to be, I mean, if you're going to start a brand, I'd say do color cosmetics because you'll have a lot of fun. And, you know, at least there's less rigor around testing. Sure. But, you know, when you start like a skin or a hair care brand, just, you know, even getting to stability testing is such a, a rigorous process. And, you know, this friend of mine who's starting this product, I was like, you have to test it. Like, you're going to be an online business and you can't assume that it's going to, like, be carried to the Amazon truck in a totally, you know, appropriate container and then not sit on the truck for three days. Sure. And so these are and and there's all these processes where, you know, you can kind of fall off. And it's so interesting because lately, for some reason, everyone's asking me, why don't you start a brand with me? And I just think, you know, I'm really happy doing what I'm doing. And I, I feel I've been I've been really fortunate to be able to reinvent my consulting over the years. And, you know, reinvention is is at the center of being a, a busy consultant because, and I, I learned this from being a keynote speaker, like you can't just have one speech and go out and give it every time because you have people in the audience who have heard you before, mm-hmm. right? So you have to constantly be thinking about how are you going to change the message so that you know, that hour you are taking from those thousand people in the audience is going to be an hour well spent. And that is my greatest fear is that people walk out of my talks and go, I want that hour back. <laughs> you, know? you don't want that. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, time is our most precious commodity, right? So. so best advice for people in the consulting space, people who want a career like yours? Well, I would say um, decide what you – a couple things. First of all, you have to understand what it is you're selling. And what consultants sell is time. 
And that's what we sell. And so within that time, what are you selling? And the biggest mistake that I see consultants who come to me when they've started a career in consulting, they go, I'm just not getting busy and I don't know why. And I say, send me your stuff. Let me look at it, is these massive lists of everything you do. And the fact of the matter is not one person does everything and no client ever expects that you would do everything. So get very, very focused on what it is you do and what it is you do well. In the consulting space, I am known as an expert in consumer behavior. I understand how she moves through the category. I understand what she's thinking. I understand why she is or isn't buying you. And those, and I have all kinds of levers I pull to have that understanding. Um, and one of them is if I take on a new product line, I say to the company, you have to pay me to sit on your selling floor and sell your product. And I got to do it for two to four days because I'm not going to understand what to tell you about this until I see how the consumer reacts to it. Hmm. And so that's my jam. I mean, that's why people hire me is that I understand why people pick you or more importantly, why they don't pick you. So that's... but. From that, I have lots of different things that I do when I'm on site. I mean, I, as I said, I help people dig into the DNA of their brand and, and what is resonating with the consumer. So that's number one. Number two is you also have to be really clear on what you don't do because in consulting, there is always scope creep. You'll be hired to do something, and then you'll get in, and all kinds of things start sprouting out from the original intent. And if you feel like, oh, I'm a consultant, I need to know all these things, you're going to fail because you're not going to deliver on the promise of what you came in to do. So the recommendation is have resources. You know, I am not a digital marketing expert. I, I know enough about it to be in the room, but if it's a digital marketing project, I have people that I call for that. You know, I'm not a content specialist. I can't look at your website and tell like, how are people moving through your website, and is it easy, or what's the drop-off rate? But I have people who do that, and I've worked with this team of mine. None of them actually work for me. They are all independent, but they love beauty. So when I call, they're like, yeah, I can make room for this. And so I have a really trusted group of people. I have an editor. I have a copywriter. I have a content specialist. I have a digital marketing expert. Hmm. And then I become the resource in Sue Remish Resources, right? right? So I can bring you, I can assemble a team and I can bring you the best people in the business and then we can get whatever you need to get over the line. So those are like the two quick pieces of advice I would give. So you may be on your own, but you're not really alone. No, no, I'm not. You surround yourself by good people, by other experts. I do, and I'm really, really lucky. I have a really great team of experts who who I love working with and they keep me in line and, you know, they're very good at, at knocking me back over the line when I start creeping over the scope. They're very good at that because, you know, we, like I said, we sell time. Yeah. So time that you are spending where you're not being paid is time that you're not being paid. <laughs> so, right. Right. And, you know, so that's, and, and when you get to a point where you have enough chops, you know, then my, my next recommendation would be just make sure that your values are in line with the company values. I mean, if I, I could never work for a company that isn't in, interested in, in in the environment and the ecosystem and sustainability because that's who I am as a person. I mean, I, I have, you know, a house that literally sucks nothing from the world, you know, and that's important to me. So the brands that I, I work for, that has to be important to them too or it just wouldn't be a good use of, you know, my heartbeats. Right. So Before I let you go, I'm going to put you on the spot. I yeah. have to. What is one product that you always have with you, whether you're off the grid, on the grid, what's in your bag? Not um, not Kevin Murphy, because we know you love Kevin. We know you love Kiehl's. What's something that you truly would pay retail prices for? Just one. <laughs> Give us a couple. <laughs> okay. Um, I will tell you, I always have Revital Lash Lash Conditioner mm. with me mm-hmm. because I had no eyelashes till I started using Revital Lash, so I love that product. Um I, uh, let me see, okay, Campy Keels and Campy Kevin Murphy. Um, I love uh, Benefits Pore Minimizer. I think it's like airbrushing the skin. So if you've worked a long day and you have to go to dinner and you have 10 minutes to do it, you put that on and it's like you've airbrushed your skin and you don't have to wash your face. So that's a product that I love. Um, I, well, if you're not going to let me mention those other two, okay, okay. give us your favorites from those lines. Okay. So from Kevin Murphy, undressed hair, uh, pomade, bedroom hair, 
and Session Spray Flex are three products I never travel without. <laughs> and those, I don't care how bad of a hair day I'm having, that will fix my hair. And um, from Kiehl's Micro Blur Skin Perfector. Okay. Can't live without it. And it's expensive, and I go through it like water, and I walk over hot burning coals to give them my money. <laughs> and I'm sure a lot so, of other people will now, too. Yeah. So thank you for thank finding you. the time yeah. to be here with us today. It was great. Great you to chat with you. out quite a career. Yeah. It's really something. Well, thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. Thanks for all the expertise. Don't go away. Next, we're going back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. I'm fascinated by this idea that Sue talked about of retaining that outside perspective even when you've been with a company for several years. Let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. John McVeigh is an entrepreneurial strategist at the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship. John, you worked as a consultant. What was that experience like for you and what's the value for the person and for the organization? Um, consulting is a fantastic uh, a sort of apprenticeship for anybody going into business. It can either serve to be a career in its own right, mm-hmm. uh, in which case you can be your own entrepreneur as a consultant, or it can also be a, a sort of bridge to being a, an advisor in many capacities to to other people who are starting their own businesses. Um, it's interesting that Sue, Sue has obviously made a career doing that. Uh, my, my own trajectory has been somewhat similar because I think in education you end up, you can end up being a, an educator and also educate the next generation of, uh, of entrepreneurs. So I worked in consulting for many years and it was just a fantastic experience. One month you'd be working on oil platforms in Louisiana. The next month you'd be working on a paper mill in Canada. The next month you'd be working on a compressor factory in Cincinnati. And and some of the requirements are perfectly suited to many of our entrepreneurial students at the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship. How so? Well, you've, you've got to be a fast learner. You've you've got to and you've got to love it because absorbing all the details of somebody else's business in an incredibly short period of time is exhausting. But if you love that, if you have that curiosity, I sometimes say to my students, um, you have to have the mindset of someone who looks at other people's businesses like somebody looks at an old-fashioned watch. You see, regular people go into the bagel shop and they see the bagels and they start smelling the bagels and they wonder, oh, wonder what flavors they've got. Consultants are crushing dinner party bores because they go into a bagel shop and they want to take the back off the watch and they go, huh, I wonder what the business model here is. I see six, oh, they've got seven employees. Oh, that times they're probably paying 10% more than the minimum wage. That probably means that's a half a million dollars of, of employee costs. Oh, they've got 42 different types of bagel. They probably need seven ovens. What's the square foot of this? Huh, what's their margin? Their margin in this business is about 14%. Oh, I can see how much capital they mean. Yeah, this makes sense, but I'm really confused. How do they actually control their supply chain costs? Huh. Those are the sort of things that go through the head as a consultant yeah. because you you just are fascinated with taking the back off the watch and seeing how different businesses you don't remotely understand at the beginning, what makes them tick? How do they work? Sounds like a good place to start, even if your goal is to start your own thing. Oh, absolutely. And there's a phrase, probably a somewhat disingenuous phrase, saying, you know, go, go make your mistakes with somebody else's money. Uh, I don't mean that in the in the cynical sense that you should you know <laughs> deliberately go and try and make mistakes on someone else's business. But inevitably, when you're a young person coming out of your you know your undergrad degree or your your graduate degree as a professional, you're going to make mistakes as you go up the learning curve, and it does make a lot of sense um, to, to to do that in a, an apprenticeship. Um, there's safety nets there when you're working in a consulting firm. If you make mistakes on somebody else's business, there are more senior partners who will catch those. Um, and then when you go into business on your own, you will have learned a lot of those lessons. You will have observed a lot of the lessons, a lot of the things to do. Uh, you know, My- Michael Porter, one of the gurus of strategy, is famous for saying, you know, um, st- strategy is uh, it's important when you're thinking about strategy, not just to say um, what you're going to do, but also be very clear about what you're not going to do. And those lessons of, of, of uh, that are learned through errors and uh, that you're not going to fall, uh, holes that you're not going to fall into are just as critical. 
title. And consulting is a fantastic place um, uh, to pick those up. So yes, it's, it can be a career in its own right. Many people go into it and they, they, they can be their own entrepreneurs. They can set up their own business, support themselves. You can also go into it and actually work for a large consulting firm and be more like a regular employee and learn um, the lessons of how to run a business, how to take the back off a watch, so to speak. Um, but you can also use it as a way to learn in advance of starting your own independent um, entrepreneurial venture, not in consulting, but actually with an idea that perhaps you came across Um it's, it's a remarkable how many times you go to large companies. I won't mention any, <laughs> any but you, you, when you're inside them and you see these fantastic ideas kicking around that can't get to the outside world right. because the large infrastructure stops those ideas coming out. That's and often being, how it happens. Yeah, We've and, talked to so many guests who were at a big company, left to start their own thing. Absolutely. And often, who do they hook up with? Because that person might be an engineer at 3M or a, you know, a scientist at, uh, at Medtronic. And who they may not necessarily have all the business skills to bring that to market. So hooking up with someone with consulting experience is a perfect marriage. Hmm. You've got the the technical expert and then there are opportunities for people who may have learned the the, the business skills um, uh, through uh, education but then also as a consultant become a perfect partner for uh, for the technical expert to, to hook up with. Right. Great perspective. Thanks so much, John. Appreciate you being here. And thanks to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of business. If you haven't already, please subscribe to By All Means wherever you listen to podcasts. Lots of other episodes for you to download wherever you listen and uh, you can get more information about the show at tcbmag.com slash byallmeans. I'm Allison Kaplan. On behalf of Twin Cities Business, thanks for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar, and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed by all means. <laughs>